0: You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. It's
1: been almost 3000 years and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's talk about myths baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: What up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. This is a show for the Nosabo kids, the the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth, issues affecting the latin community and much more then every thursday i'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community listen to life as a gringo on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts
3: the therapy for black girls podcast is your space to explore mental health personal development and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves i'm your host dr joy Harden bradford a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.
1: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello
0: and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Over the last couple of years that Holly and I have been on this show, we have gotten literally hundreds and hundreds of requests from listeners. And maybe 5% of them are requests that we get over and over and over and over again. And unfortunately, a handful of those most requested episodes are also ones that we can't really do a whole show on. Sometimes there's just not enough information available about the thing. Sometimes the information exists somewhere, but there's not a way that we can really get to it. It's either uh, not in a language that we speak, or it's so spread out among so many different things that it would take way more time than we can really put into a show that puts out two new episodes in a week. Or sometimes there are just, there's information, but it's so far removed from primary sources that it just doesn't feel that reliable. Uh, occasionally, we actually get emails from people who kind of go, I want you to do an episode on this. I know the information is out there because my friend is doing his master's thesis on it. And uh, I'm just going to go ahead and put it out there. We cannot do a master's thesis level of work a podcast that comes out twice a week. We would be on like a Dan Carlin hardcore history kind of schedule if, if that were the time that we could put into every episode. So what we're going to do today is to take six of these things that are impossible to do an episode on their own, and we're going to just run through them in one show. So that is our six impossible episodes for today.
4: So first up, we're going to talk about Mary Fields, who is also known as Stagecoach Mary. And this is a person who a lot of people hear about for the first time through a post on Badass of the Week, which if you're not familiar with that site, the language is a bit blue. So maybe do not Google it after this episode and read it aloud to an elementary school class or other small children, etc.,
0: Here's what we do know about Stagecoach Mary. She was born a slave in Tennessee in 1832 and was owned by a family called the Dunn's. She and one of the Dunn's daughters, Dolly, basically grew up together, and Mary learned to read and write while she was still a slave. After slavery was abolished, she moved to Toledo, Ohio, with Dolly Dunn, who was going there to become a nun.
4: Dolly Dunn became known as Mother Amadeus, and she eventually moved to Cascade, Montana to teach at a school for Native American children. For a while, Mary stayed behind in Ohio, but when Mother Amadeus became extremely ill, they sent for her.
0: Mother Amadeus eventually got better, and Mary stayed in Cascade. She did odd jobs around St. Peter's Mission, and she basically acted as a protector for the nuns. She also got a job delivering the mail by stagecoach, which made her the first African-American woman to work delivering U.S. mail.
4: And we talk in our Charlie Parkhurst episode about what a demanding and dangerous job stagecoach driving was. And Mary apparently took to it tremendously. She was extremely reliable as a driver, and she developed a reputation for fighting, brawling and taking guff from absolutely no one. Uh, there are a number of stories of her knocking men out with one blow under a variety of circumstances. And this is also why she wound up not working for the convent anymore. Uh, it was the combination of her personality and her work that earned her that nickname Stagecoach Mary.
0: Eventually, she retired from Stagecoach driving and opened a laundry. And she became a really beloved figure in Cascade, which actually made her birthday a holiday.
4: And stagecoach Mary died in 1914. She was 82 at the time, and she is buried just outside Cascade, Montana.
0: In terms of information about her, there's a children's book about her, as well as a documentary called Discovering Mary, and that's by a woman named Joyce Fitzpatrick. I haven't seen the film itself, but she talks about picking up tidbits of information for years before making the film. And the film itself actually started out more as a documentary of her recording her own process of looking for more information about Mary Fields. So when people first started asking us to do an episode about Stagecoach Mary, there was actually a a crowdfunding project in the works somewhere about a documentary. I'm not sure if it was this documentary or a different one, uh, but now... Almost two years later, when I went looking for it again, all traces of that have vanished into the ether. So at the time I was like, Hey, when this documentary comes out, maybe we will be able to get uh, enough to do a whole episode on this person. And it's it evaporated. I don't, I don't know what happens to it.
4: So if it does come out, there's always still the possibility. We'll see. Uh, but next up in our Impossible episodes is the London Beer Flood. And you may remember the episode in our archive about the Boston Molasses Flood, which was back in the era of Katie and Sarah. And in 1915, a vat in Boston's North End burst sending a 15-foot wave of molasses that ripped buildings off their foundations and killed more than 20 people and also injured another 150
0: so the London beer flood was a lot like that, except that it was beer and it was about a 100 years earlier. And it's also we have a similar amount of information about it uh, as about the Boston molasses flood, except that episode on the Boston molasses flood is from back when the podcast was only 15 minutes long. <laughs>
4: Yeah, there was a a lot less fleshing out of all of the details at that point. And so for the London beer flood on October 17th of 1814, a three story tall beer vat of fermenting beer broke at a brewery and it unleashed a 15 foot high wave of porter. And as the wave roared through the brewery, it broke taps off other vats, which caused a chain reaction that then flooded the surrounding area with beer.
0: Some sources report this having happened at the Horseshoe Brewery on Tottenham Court Road. And other sources say it was the Mr. Henry Mew and Company on Bainbridge Street. So to kind of solve that mystery, those two streets intersect with each other. Uh, and the second, the, uh, the Mew brothers bought the brewery in 1841. So this is sort of two different ways of describing the same brewery.
4: And eight people were killed in the beer flood, and many buildings were destroyed. There was no drainage in the streets, so the beer basically had nowhere to go except through people's homes so it just went right into them and right through them and two of those people that were killed were a mother and daughter who were having tea in their home and then were swept away five more were a family who had been killed in their basement uh while they were in the process of mourning their two-year-old child who had just died a brick wall collapsed and killed another woman named eleanor cooper
0: there was an inquest after this happened One of the hoops holding the vat together had actually broken and slipped off earlier in the day, but apparently this wasn't a really unusual occurrence. It happened sometimes, and they would go and fix it. When George Crick, who was a 17-year employee of the brewery, reported the incident to his boss, he was told that it would not be a problem, and he was instructed to delegate replacing the hoop to a different employee. The inquest determined that this was an act of God, and the brewery was cleared of all wrongdoing. There were no restitutions paid, and actually the taxes that the brewery had previously paid on the beer that it was brewing were waived. One
4: of the longstanding rumors about this flood is that people rushed to the streets with pots and pans to try to get free beer. This is almost certainly false, and probably stems from an effort to sort of insult the people living there because many of them were Irish.
0: The brewery did eventually resume operations, but then it closed in 1921. The 200th anniversary of the London beer flood was in 2014. And at that point, there was this just huge number of articles that came out about it. And I was really hopeful at that point that, hey, we'll have enough information to do a whole episode now. But uh, all the articles basically said the facts that we just told you. There wasn't a lot of additional information that came out around the 200th anniversary.
4: So the middle part of this episode is going to cover two subjects that have brought on a load of requests, but they are really, really difficult to substantiate. So before we dive into those, Tracy, do you want to pause for a word from a sponsor?
0: Let's do that. All righty. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out season two of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks.
5: I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step.
2: Culture, and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Tura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
6: And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: We've gotten several requests to talk about Edward Mordrake, and we got a lot more after he was a character in the most recent season of American Horror Story. But if you take all the supposedly out of Edward Mordrake's story, there's not a lot of words left in it. So what we do know,
4: supposedly, is that Edward Mordrake was the son of an upper class or noble family in England. And he's said to have been rather a good looking man, except for the fact that he had a second face on the back of his head.
0: The most lengthy documentation we have of this is from Curiosities of Medicine, being an encyclopedic collection of rare and extraordinary cases and the most striking instances of abnormality in all branches of medicine and surgery, derived from an exhaustive research of medical literature, from its origin to the present day, abstracted, classified, annotated, and indexed. And that is by George M. Gould and Walter L. Pyle, and that came out at about 1896.
4: So that entry goes the following well-known story of Edward Mordrake, though taken from lay sources, is of sufficient notoriety and interest to be mentioned here. Quote, one of the weirdest as well as most melancholy stories of human deformity is that of Edward Mordrake said to have been heir to one of the noblest peerages in England. He never claimed the title, however, and committed suicide in his 23rd year. He lived in complete seclusion, refusing the visits even of the members of his own family. He was a young man of fine attainments, a profound scholar, and a musician of rare ability. His figure was remarkable for its grace, and his face, that is to say his natural face, was that of an Antinous. But upon the back of his head was another face, that of a beautiful girl, lovely as a dream, hideous as a devil." The female face was a mere mask, occupying only a small portion of the posterior part of the skull, yet exhibiting every sign of intelligence of a malignant sort, however. It would be seen to smile and sneer while Mordrake was weeping. The eyes would follow the movements of the spectator, and the lips would gibber without ceasing. No voice was audible but Mordrake avers that he was kept from his rest at night by the hateful whispers of his devil twin, as he called it, which never sleeps, but talks to me forever of such things as they only speak of in hell. No imagination can conceive the dreadful temptations it sets before me. For some unforgiven wickedness of my forefathers, I am knit to this fiend, for a fiend it surely is. I beg and beseech you to crush it out of human semblance, even if I die for it. Such were the words of the hapless Mordrake to Manvers and Treadwell, his physicians. In spite of careful watching, he managed to procure poison whereof he died, leaving a letter requesting that the demon face might be destroyed before his burial quote, lest it continues its dreadful whisperings in my grave. At his own request, he was interred in a waste place without stone or legend to mark his grave. And we wanted to point out that uh, there are variations on spelling. So if you go look at this, this is a, a transcription. Uh, in in this particular one that we read, they leave the R out of Mordrake, so it's Mordake. So you may see it either way if you go looking like at show notes or whatnot.
0: Yeah. So... Uh, there are a number of conditions that can cause someone to appear to have a second face or, like, remnants of facial structures. Um, but what, what these two doctors, they were really doctors, the guys who wrote this book, uh, what they are reporting is something that this guy supposedly said to two different physicians. And it's all sounds, the tone is more like rumor than actual medical evidence? Yeah. So this whole thing goes into, like, the uh, the probably apocryphal category. There's just not, there's no real documentation. And it's very convenient that he says he was buried with no stone or, or no marker. Like, we have no way to prove that this person ever actually existed. Because all we have to go on is this third Party account.
4: <laughs> yeah, it's it's such a compelling story, and I know people love it. But it also, when you kind of break it down, it reads like a checklist of all of the the vital elements of any sort of juicy rumor. Like it's unsub- right. you can't substantiate it, and the details are baked into the story that you can't substantiate it. Like no, and he will never be found because he didn't want to be found, so his grave is unmarked. And no, his doctors told us, but we don't really know those doctors, and so it's all.
0: It's not, yeah. not going to happen. Our our next story is similarly a story that people really, really love a whole lot. But we've gotten a lot of requests for. Uh, a lot of them come in around Halloween, but they come in through the rest of the year also. And these are for Robert the Haunted Doll, who is sometimes also called Robert the Enchanted Doll. And in the words of the Key West Art and Historical Society, quote, Robert is a one-of-a-kind handmade doll created around the turn of the 20th century. Standing 40 inches tall and stuffed with wood wool known as Excelsior, he is dressed in a sailor suit and once bore painted features not unlike those of a jester.
4: So, just to be pretty upfront, this thing looks creepy. (laughs) Um, The paint is worn off of its face, so it has creepy flat black eyes and the nose and mouth are sort of hard to define from the rest of the face. Uh, It's got this wooden head that's also got some pitting in it. So the whole thing is a little bit unsettling and unnerving to behold.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people find old dolls creepy in general. This is a very old doll. And then it has this creepy story to go along with it. Robert was a gift given to a little boy named Robert Eugene Otto, who later became known as Gene rather than Robert. And it was given to him when he was four years old. This was in 1904. Uh, and it's a little, there are different accounts of exactly who gave it to him. The, the original origin in all the stories is the Bahamas, but it's not quite clear whether it was the maid who was from the Bahamas or if it was the maid's daughter, because some people report that it was a little girl. Either way, the doll is about the same size as Gene himself was at the time, and Gene named the doll Robert after himself.
4: Gene also gave Robert his own room in the attic with his own toys, and he eventually started blaming this doll for his own misbehavior. Eventually,
0: Robert took the blame for anything unwelcome that
4: happened to Gene.
0: And along the way, other people who were not Gene started reporting weird things about the doll. People looking through the window from the street said that they would see it move from one side of the attic turret to another, People inside the house said that they could hear it walking around and giggling above them while they were downstairs. And some people even said that they saw the, doll, the doll's expression change as though it was listening to their conversations.
4: Gene eventually became an artist. You know, he grew up and he married. And his wife is reported to have hated the doll and demanded that it be locked in a chest. Eventually, after both Gene and his wife died, their home was made into the Artist House Hotel. Myrtle Reuter, who bought the home in 1974, donated the doll to the East Martello Museum 20 years later. And the doll is on display at the museum, which is an old fort, and the doll also has its bear with him. Uh, Museum staff reported that security cameras and other electronics often failed around the doll. Museum patrons have written him letters of apology after taking his photograph without having permission, and then they would experience bad luck later.
0: All of this sounds pretty underwhelming, considering that a lot of the blog posts that you find about Robert uh, describe the doll as evil or possessed or the most haunted doll in history. Uh, those kinds of posts aren't generally those sorts of things we can use as sources for the podcast. And w- w- what we do know about the doll, for sure, is that it's a doll and it creeps people out. And uh, I will admit that I, though, am still a little nervous talking about Robert without his permission. Really, I hope nothing bad befalls us.
4: That sort of makes me chuckle because usually I'm the more superstitious of the two of us and I don't have it for
0: this one. (laughs) Well, (laughs) ghost stories scare me, even though I would call myself generally skeptical about such things.
4: Interesting. We've all learned a little about Tracy today. Um, Before we get to the next two uh, stories that are particularly wacky, do you want to take another word from a sponsor?
0: Sure. Sweet. Sweet. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out season two of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks.
5: I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step.
2: Culture, and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
6: I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the General. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but...
5: Same old it's... Oh, yeah.
6: And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right.
5: right.
0: To get back to our uh, last two impossible episodes, these are also hard to substantiate, but they're not nearly as paranormal in their origin as the two that we had before the break. We're going to start first with the Lost Army of Cambyses. And this actually was a really welcome suggestion the first time that we got it, because I had been looking for some interesting ancient history to talk about. Uh, And so I got this, and I was very excited. And then as soon as I looked into it, I went, that's not going to work. Greek historian Herodotus wrote about Cambyses II sending an army of 50,000 soldiers on a mission to destroy the Oracle of Ammon. And this is the same oracle that Alexander the Great Later visited. He did that in the year 332 BCE. After this visit, uh, Alexander the Great reportedly started to think of himself as the son of Ammon. And this particular event
4: uh, purportedly happened almost 200 years prior to Alexander's visit. The oracle had refused to recognize Cambyses as sovereign over Egypt. So Cambyses sent an army away uh, out from Thebes to the oasis of Siwa, where the Temple of Ammon was located, to destroy the oracle. But the army never arrived.
0: So here's what Herodotus had to say about that. As for those who were sent to march against the Ammonians as they set out and journeyed from Thebes with guides... And it is known that they came to the city of Oasis, inhabited by the Samians, said to be of the Ascreonian tribe, seven days' march from Thebes across sandy desert. This place is called, in the Greek language, Islands of the Blessed. Thus far, it is said, the army came. After that, except for the Ammonians themselves and those who heard from them, no man can say anything of them, for they neither reached the Ammonians nor returned back. But this is what the Ammonians themselves say. That when Persians were crossing the sand from Oasis, probably the Oasis of Kargeh, to attack them, and were about midway between their country and Oasis, while they were breakfasting, a great and violent south wind arose which buried them in the masses of sand which it bore, and so they disappeared from sight. Such is the Ammonian tale of this army.
4: And that's most of what we know about it. Uh, a sandstorm buried an army. Maybe. But a lot of historians think the whole thing is completely apocryphal.
0: Every once in a while, researchers will find, in scare quotes, the army. Usually what they have found is some shards of pottery and some bones. Some of these finds are outright hoaxes, and others have been a little more substantive, like there really is pottery and there really are bones, but often the research itself is still questionable in some way, like people have gone and done their searching without uh, actually getting permission to be in Egypt in the first place. And then they've presented findings as a documentary film rather than through the typical channels that you announce academic findings, like through a journal that is subject to peer review.
4: Lastly, on our list of six impossible episodes is Julie Daubigny, aka La Maupin. We get a lot of requests for her. Uh, she's portrayed as a swashbuckling, cross-dressing, bisexual opera singer with romantic adventures to rival Casanovas. Which is pretty exciting. Uh, lots right. of the most recent, lots of the more recent requests are also accompanied with a link to the post that was written about her at the Rejected Princesses blog.
0: Here is a snippet of her entry in Curiosities of Biography or Memoirs of Wonderful and Extraordinary Characters, which came out in 1845. This female, who acquired extraordinary celebrity as a singer in France in the 17th century, was one of the numerous instances in which a stage heroine fortified by public favor and presuming on the magic of a melodious voice, defied the laws and institutions of a country by which she was supported and committed, with impunity, crimes which would have doomed a common, unaccomplished desperado, an ignominious death. This romantic and indecorous adventurer, who dressed, fought, made love, and conquered like a man, having been married at an early age, fortunately for her husband, Monsieur Maupin, quitted him a few months after their nuptials for the superior attractions of a fencing master, a weapon which she afterwards handled with destructive dexterity against many antagonists.
4: While today's accounts of her tend to talk about her escapades pretty gleefully, early retellings are unsurprisingly a bit less glowing. And this particular account goes on to describe her wooing a young lady and then when that young lady had second thoughts, burning down her house, which is where La Maupin was staying, uh, abducting her and then holding her captive until they were discovered.
0: The trouble with an episode on Llama Pen is that even the accounts of her from that time that she lived, which was roughly 1670 to 1707, really read a lot more like rumor than a factual account. And while there are a couple of thorough-looking blog posts about her, some of them are quite lengthy, mostly they are sourced in kind of bits and pieces from introductions, footnotes, and asides in other works. Uh, There's at least one novel about her, but we can't use fiction as a source for our history podcast because history and fiction are two different things, sort of. I mean, you could make an argument that all history is in some way fictitious, but a novel is not (laughs) a source that we could use about someone's life.
4: Yeah, since novels really generally make no assertion of historical accuracy, like they're not held to that same standard It's just not a viable source to use. You can mention it. We've mentioned it in other episodes where we go, oh, there's this novel about it and there's some interesting info that may or may not be true, but we can't really use
0: it as a primary source. No, unless we're, unless our episode is about the person who wrote the novel. Right. Then it totally is relevant. And absolutely no shade to Rejected Princesses in that assessment. Like, Rejected Princesses is awesome. I love that blog. Me too. Uh, But for our purposes, we need a little bit Fewer layers of according to so-and-so between us and the subject before we can really talk about it really well. Um, we get so many epi- or so many requests about her that are just like, oh, I love her. She sounds awesome. Doesn't she sound awesome? You should do an episode on her. She sounds awesome. And I'm like, she does sound awesome. Sounds super <laughs> she awesome. She sounds super awesome. Uh, but I, I, you know, I, I can't really build a podcast episode on a blog post that is sourcing Notes of other books that I can't go and read for myself for various reasons. Yeah. So those are six things that we get requests for all the time but are impossible to do whole episodes on, at least at this point.
4: Yeah, so hopefully this gave you a little bit of satisfaction, those of you that are yearning for those episodes.
0: I hope so. I also have some listener mail. Stupendous! (laughs) This message is from Ethan. Ethan says, I thought you might be interested in the following bit of info about the Iroquois Theater Fire. Architect Louis Gunzel investigated the Iroquois Theater Fire and was granted full access to the site beginning the morning after the tragedy. Since he found it, quote, impossible to obtain plans or specifications of the structure, he measured the building, reconstructed the plans, and photographed various sections of the theater, This took weeks, and his inspection was exhaustive. His findings were dated January twentieth, nineteen 1904. Mr. Gunzel attended the court proceedings following the, the disaster and, quote, was greatly surprised to see that notwithstanding the many faults and defects in the planning of the theater and the unparalleled negligence displayed in its supervision and operation, all of the suits ended in verdicts not guilty. His paper was never meant for publication, but after years of discussions with eyewitnesses, and conversations at memorial meetings, he concluded that, quote, actual conditions prevalent in the theater at the time of the fire have been maliciously withheld from the public by clever and successful manipulation. He published his paper in 1945, and the Theater Historical Society of America republished it in booklet form in 1993. Anyone looking for details about how the tragedy reached the proportions it did should look for this booklet, or contact the Theater Historical Society. Uh, I think some of my sources quoted from the booklet, but I did not personally read the booklet myself. So I'm glad to know that that's a thing you can still get your hands on if you're yeah. looking for more information about that. So thank you, Ethan. If you would like to write to us about this or any other episode, you can. We're at HistoryPodcast at com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash history and on Twitter at in History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com and we're also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash history. We have a Spreadshirt store where you can get shirts and phone cases and other cool stuff. It is at mistinhistory.spreadshirt.com. If you would like to learn a little bit more about something that came up in today's episode, you can come to our parent company's website. That is howstuffworks.com. Put the word beer into the search bar. You will find the article how beer works. You can also come to our website where we have an archive of every episode we've ever done, show notes for all the ones from the last couple of years, lots of other cool stuff. That is at mistinhistory.com. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or mythinhistory.com.
3: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
2: What up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. This is a show for the Nosabo kids, the the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth, issues affecting the Latin community, and much more. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community. Listen to Life as a Gringo on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.